All right, well, if you would turn in your copy of the scriptures to John chapter 6 as I continue to preach through the gospel of John. We're in the sixth chapter, starting into a new chapter this morning. And if you would, we're going to, if you would read with me, we're going to begin by reading our text this morning, which is John 6, 1 through 15, beginning in verse 1, John chapter 6, this is the holy word of the Lord. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as many as, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that none may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. It's a classic story. If you have any Bible knowledge, you've probably heard it. God delivered the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt and through the Red Sea with a mighty hand, vanquishing their enemies in the process. It was called the Exodus. Then God led the Israelites out into the Sinai wilderness toward the promised land, going before them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They hadn't gotten far into the wilderness, you remember, before they began running out of food. Later on in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, Moses explained that the Lord let them hunger in order to test them, to see what was in their heart. Then he fed them with bread out of heaven called manna in order to teach them to trust in him, not in physical bread as their true source of life. Now, the reason I draw your attention to this well-known story from Exodus chapter 16 is because it clearly provides the background to the well-known story in our text this morning in John 6. The story of Jesus 
miraculously feeding the 5,000. Now in both stories, the Israelites find themselves in a desolate place without food. In both stories, we are told that this was an occasion for the testing of the hearts of his people. And in both stories, they are fed through a supernatural provision of bread. Now, while these connections are actually evident in all four Gospels, it's John's account which brings them out the most. In fact, it's almost as if John chose in this fourth Gospel to tell the story of this miracle again, even though it had already been told in the previous three Gospels, in order to draw out these connections that I've mentioned more explicitly than they had before. Because after talking about the miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000 in our text, verses 1 through 15, John then went on to tell us about a discussion, a discourse which Jesus had with the Jews afterward, in which he used the story of God feeding Israel with manna in the wilderness to explain what his own miracle of multiplying the loaves to feed 5,000 Israelites in the wilderness revealed about himself. So indeed, what we have here in John 6 is the fourth of seven miraculous signs recorded in John's gospel, followed by a discourse which explains what that miraculous sign indicates about who Jesus is and what he came to do. And this morning, we're going to look at the miracle, the sign. Next Sunday, we will begin looking at the long discourse which follows it. Now, John begins, chapter 6, verse 1, by saying this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. After this, well... After what happened in the last chapter, in chapter 5, and in the last chapter, chapter 5, you remember that Jesus was in Jerusalem for an unnamed feast. And now we're jumping forward, jumping forward an unspecified amount of time, actually. It was some amount of time because verse 1 tells us that Jesus is way back up north in Galilee now, traveling across the sea. Verse 4 tells us that the Passover feast had now come around. According to one scholar, as much as half a year may have passed between the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Now in verse 1, we're told that Jesus, quote, went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which he points out by the time he was writing this book toward the end of the first century, had commonly come to be called the Sea of Tiberias. Now, John doesn't specify where Jesus was going in his gospel as he sailed across the Sea of Galilee. But Luke's account of the event tells us that he was actually headed to a region near the city of Bethsaida, which is in the northeast part of the sea. There's a wilderness region out there. And that's where he was headed. John also doesn't tell us why Jesus was heading there, but again, the other Gospels do. So, for instance, Mark tells us that the twelve 
had just returned from the preaching mission that Jesus had sent them out on. And when they returned to Jesus in Galilee, it says this. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in a boat to a desolate place by themselves. Well, that explains why Jesus was sailing across the sea in our text. This retreat, however, was not to be, as so many retreats are. Because we see in verse 2 of our text that, quote, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Again, Mark's account of this gives more detail. It says in Mark 6, 33 through 34, that as Jesus and his disciples left in the boat, quote, many saw them going and recognized them and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them so that when they pulled up on shore in the boat, they saw a great crowd there waiting for them. By the way, did you notice that John spelled out for us the reason why the crowds were following Jesus? He said it was, quote, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. In other words, they were following Jesus because of the miraculous healings that he had been performing. So, Perhaps they wanted to be healed themselves, or more likely most of them wanted to see a healing take place. And that indicated a deficiency in their faith, in their reason why they were following Jesus. And the deficiency in the crowd's motivation for following Jesus is going to come up more prominently later in the chapter, but it's worth pointing out here as well because it really gives us a sobering Heart check, doesn't it? Leads you to ask, why are you following Jesus? Is it because you have come to believe that he is the son of God who has rescued you from your sins and now you want to serve him as Lord? Or is it because of what you perceive he might do for you? Whether that's some kind of supernatural experience, or a provision of physical blessings? Well, if, like these crowds in John 6, you are seeking Jesus from that kind of self-serving motivation, well, then eventually you're most likely to be disappointed and lose interest in him. Because Jesus is not some cosmic butler in the sky. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. He's working out the plans of God the Father for the universe. But if you seek Jesus because you have come to trust in him as your Savior and you want to serve him now as Lord of your life, then you will find in him the ultimate purpose and joy that your heart desires. John's account isn't interested in A lot of what happens in this story that you see in the other Gospels, for instance, the fact that when Jesus landed and saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd and he spent the day ministering to their needs. Instead, what John seems to do is skip forward to the end of the day 
When, as it says in verse 3, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. And we know that that is at the end of the day because the other Gospels make clear that that's when the conversation that is described in our text takes place, at the end of the day. That's when this whole matter of how they were going to feed these crowds arose between Jesus and his disciples. Now, before getting to that conversation, it is interesting that John interrupts the story in verse 4, and he tells us, quote, The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Now, that little note seems strange at first, uh, but as the chapter unfolds, I think it becomes a little more sensical to us. Because the Passover feast, well, what did it commemorate? It commemorated the great exodus event of God saving Israel out of Egypt and bringing them out into the desert and feeding them with manna from heaven, etc. It draws your mind back to all of those things as you hear it mentioned here. And the miracle and the discourse which are coming in this chapter repeatedly allude to those events. So, Jesus, we see, tried to withdraw with his disciples to a desolate place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee, only to find these crowds awaiting him. When he arrived, he had compassion on them. He spent the day ministering to them. But in the evening, he went up on a nearby mountain with his disciples for a brief respite. Verse 5 tells us that from that vantage point on the mountain, Jesus lifted up his eyes and saw the crowds coming to him. And John tells us that upon seeing this, quote, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, of course, it wasn't as if Jesus didn't know what to do and is asking Philip for some advice. Rather, John went on very quickly to clarify in verse 6, didn't he? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. So here we see that what seemed like a relaxing getaway gone wrong was actually part of a bigger plan. A plan to bring his disciples here, to put their faith to the test. As God had brought Israel out into the desert and let them go without food in order to test them to see what was in their hearts, Moses said. Well, so Jesus had brought his disciples into this desolate place where there was no food for the crowds in order to test them, to see what was in their hearts. Would Philip demonstrate faith in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, by turning to him and trusting in him and saying, Lord, you can provide the food for these people in the wilderness? Or would the test reveal that Philip didn't yet grasp who Jesus was and didn't trust him as he ought? By the way, it's worth pausing here, isn't it? Just to note that our Lord is ordering the events of our lives in his sovereignty too. And he often ordains for us as his disciples today that we too might face daunting, overwhelming challenges in our life in order to test us, 
to see what is in our hearts. It may be a daunting diagnosis. Maybe it will be a major financial hit. A deep betrayal by someone that you trusted. A crisis in the nation. And God's design in these types of things is not to destroy us, but to test us. And our response will reveal what's going on in our hearts. And the question is, will the fire of testing reveal a confidence in God that leads us to trust in him to protect us and to provide the grace that we need to endure the challenge before us? Or is it going to reveal a lack of faith that leads us to doubt God's goodness, to grumble against him in the face of hardship? Now, if our faith is true saving faith, then we will emerge from these times of testing with stronger faith in Christ, with greater faith in Christ that will enable us to endure more trials in the future and thereby bring him glory. And we would do well, brothers and sisters, to remember all of this now. That is, that God is purposed to test us through difficulties in life. So that we will be ready, ready to respond to them when they come. You remember how James so famously put it in James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. I'd venture to say that Many of our failures in times of testing come from acting as if we can't understand or believe that this is happening to us. So, Jesus had tested Philip. He'd asked him the question in verse 5. Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Philip's response comes in verse 7. There it says, Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. Tells us a little bit about who Philip is. He's the type of guy that pulls out the calculator. And he's calculating what it would be, what it would cost to to purchase a vast amount of food that would be needed to even give these crowds a little to eat. And he's crunched the numbers in his head and he reports back to Jesus his conclusion that there was no way that they could afford it. Even if they spent 200 denarii worth of money, that's you know equivalent to about eight months wages for the average worker. And even if they could go and find places that had enough bread to sell it to them in the moment, it would still not be enough to provide a decent meal to all these people. It just wasn't humanly feasible, Jesus. That was Philip's reply to the question. And then this type of answer was seconded by another disciple of Jesus. Verses 8 and 9, there it says, One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? 
You know, you wonder, had Andrew heard Jesus say this and started looking over his shoulder? Does anyone have any bread? And, or maybe there was a boy nearby who overheard and said, well, I've got this. We don't know exactly how it happened, but we do know that Andrew's point here is almost certainly just to bring Jesus' attention to the fact that, look, it's impossible for us to feed the people out of what we have on hand. So, both Philip and Andrew had, you'd have to say, failed the test. Now, it's not that they didn't have any faith at all in Jesus, but their faith was still quite deficient, wasn't it? He had asked the question, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And instead of considering who it is that had asked them the question, the Christ, the Son of God, whom they had seen turn water into wine and heal the lame man at the pool of Bethesda and do many other miraculous signs, instead of turning to him and trusting that he was able to provide what was needed, Jesus, we don't need to buy bread. You can give it to them. Instead, they just looked to their own physical resources and declared, well, it's impossible. Now, before we criticize our, in our minds the disciples for doing this, let's consider how easy it is for us to despair in the face of the challenges that God brings into our lives because we only take into account our own meager resources and the natural factors that we can see in evaluating the situation. And we forget the almighty power and the infinite goodness of this same Lord Jesus who is present with us. If we would only consider who it is that is with us, as we face seemingly insurmountable difficulties in life, we would not despair. Because nothing is too difficult for him. And who shall separate us from his perfect love and goodness? And he's perfectly aware of what we're facing. And he knows the best way to handle it. Well, after hearing Philip and Andrew's response... Jesus then takes control of the situation. What the disciples had concluded was impossible, he would easily do. He would take, in fact, their meager resources which they had brought to him, what they had on hand, the boys' five barley loaves, which was the food of the poor, and two small fish, which was like a side dish, and make it sufficient to feed these vast multitudes of Israelites who had followed him out into this desolate place and were without food. And by this miracle, this fourth sign in the Gospel of John, Jesus would address the deficiency in his disciples' faith by revealing to them a little more of his glory as the Christ, the Son of God. And by the way, he will do the same with all of us who are reading this story today. If we have eyes to see and ears to hear, so let's pay attention. We read in verse 10. Jesus said, 
have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So we see here that when we hear that this was a desolate place, that means that it was far from civilization. There was no easy sources of food and water, but this is not like the Sahara Desert. Uh, At this time of year, at least, it seems that there was still grass in this place. And both Luke and Mark actually tell us the interesting detail that when Jesus had them sit down on the grass, he had them do so in groups of 50 and 100. And as you read those accounts, you might ask, well, why would he do that? Probably to make it easier to count how many people were there, which may be Why John and the other gospel writers could all tell us in verse 10 that the men sat down about 5,000 in number. But it is interesting that Matthew adds the little note that this was besides women and children. Meaning that there is a whole lot more than 5,000 people at this meal overall. In fact, most scholars guess that probably this would have been more like 20,000 people. But the vast number is to highlight the magnitude of what was about to happen. Next, we read in verse 11. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. You might notice something that's missing there. The other three Gospels all emphasize this fact that after blessing the food and breaking the bread, he gave it to the disciples to distribute to the people. But John opts not to talk about that, not that he doesn't believe it happened. Of course he does, but he leaves it out because his concern is to emphasize that the bread by which this multitude of people was fed came from Jesus. He had multiplied these five meager barley loaves two small fish, so that they were sufficient to feed this gigantic crowd of Israelites in the wilderness who had no food. And the meal Jesus gave them, it's emphasized in the text, wasn't just sufficient. It was a good meal. It was abundant. In fact, John tells us they ate, quote, as much as they wanted. Indeed, there was even some left over. So we read in verses 12 and 13, when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. Now, the fact that there were exactly 12 baskets full of leftover bread, it sort of further heightens that Jesus is in control of everything that's happening here. And it actually points us to his purpose in it. You know, it's possible that 12 baskets full of leftover bread maybe corresponded to the 12 tribes of Israel. And they signified Jesus' ability to provide everything his covenant people needed. But it seems more likely to me that the 12 baskets of leftovers corresponded to the 12 disciples who were collecting them. Perhaps they had personally gone around with these baskets and collected the bread themselves so that when they returned to Jesus with what they had gathered, they each had one full basket in their hands. 
And if so, then these baskets of leftovers would have been a powerful sign to these 12 disciples of what they had failed to see before. Namely, the true glory of their master, the Lord Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. But what specifically about his glory were they to see about him in all of this? Well, in some ways, this is what the rest of the chapter is about. But I think even now, we ought to catch a glimpse of it. When we're told here in John chapter 6 of an incident where a great multitude of Israelites find themselves in a desolate place without food and are fed by a miraculous provision of bread, we can't help being reminded that of the events of Exodus 16 where a great multitude of Israelites found themselves in a wilderness without food and were fed by a miraculous provision of bread. Except, when we compare these two events, the one in Exodus 16 and the other here in John 6, we're struck not only by the many similarities, but also by one great difference. In Exodus 16, it was Yahweh who miraculously provided bread for Israel. Whereas here in John 6, it is Jesus who does it. And in this we see how the curtain is sort of pulled back here. And the true glory of Jesus is shining forth through this sign, this miracle. As the Christ, the Son of God, Jesus is Yahweh. Come in the flesh, the Word who is with God in the beginning, who was God, has become flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory and we're seeing it here. Except here we see that he has come to provide his people with life-giving bread. Indeed. As Jesus will go on to say in this discourse that follows in the rest of the passage, He is the bread of God who has come down from heaven to give eternal life to the world. Jesus is going to say it later on in verse 35 this way. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. If you're not a Christian here this morning, let me just speak to you now. In one sense, here is the gospel of Jesus Christ revealed to you through this miracle of Jesus feeding the 5,000. The backstory is that you are God's creature, the God revealed in the Bible. He made you in his own image to glorify him in the earth. But you have sinned. You have fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result, you are guilty before him, cut off from his life. Dead in your trespasses and sins, headed to eternal destruction in hell. Because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But just as God so long ago gave bread from heaven to the Israelites so that they would not perish in the wilderness. You see, so now God has given greater bread out of heaven. His own son, Jesus into the world to save sinners like you and me from perishing in hell for our sins. 
Jesus is the true bread of God who gives eternal life to everyone who will feed upon him by faith. He died on the cross to pay for the sins of everyone who will believe in him. He rose again that they might have life through him. And so, if you're not a believer here this morning, the call to you is come to Jesus. Recognize the insufficiency of your own meager resources and trust in him to save you from death through his own death and give you eternal life. And we who are his disciples, disciples of Jesus here today, who have ourselves believed in him, fed upon him by faith and received the eternal life that he offers for our souls, Well, we should now instinctively know, right? To now trust him. To provide for us everything that we need to make it through the rest of this wilderness life. I think of what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8.32. Using a sort of greater, lesser to greater argument. He says, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. If he's done the greater thing for us, how will he not also? With him graciously give us all things. Will he not also do the lesser thing too? Of course he will. You remember how Yahweh gave Israel manna every day in the wilderness until they crossed over the Jordan River into Canaan. Well, so he gives us everything we need in Christ Jesus, the bread of life to endure all the difficulties of following him in this wilderness world until we cross over those waters of death into his glorious presence in the heavenly country. If we ever find ourselves despairing in the face of spiritual challenges that we face in this life, it's because we're looking to our own five loaves and two fishes. (laughs) And we're saying it's impossible, God. And forgetting who is with us. And not trusting in his almighty power, his perfect wisdom and goodness. In verse 14 of our text, we see how the crowds responded to Jesus' incredible miracle. And there it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Now you might be wondering, when the crowd say, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world, what is he referring to? Well, he's quite obviously, for those that are familiar with the Old Testament, especially the Pentateuch, he's referring to a well-known prophecy that Moses, the quintessential prophet of the Old Covenant, had spoken back in Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 19. He'd said to the people this, And the Lord said to me, and I'm skipping forward here a bit, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him, and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Okay, so that's who they're talking about. Indeed, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. But why? Why would the crowds conclude that Jesus was this 
prophet like Moses, whose coming was predicted in Deuteronomy 18 when they saw this particular miracle. What about this miracle made them think of that prophecy? Well, probably it's because they saw in the miracle a parallel between Jesus and Moses, right? When Jesus miraculously gave them bread in the wilderness, it reminded them of how God had given their forefathers manna in the wilderness through Moses. And they thought, well, here is the prophet like Moses, whom Moses said was coming. So what did that mean? Did they think he was the Messiah? Well, it seems so, because in the next verse, verse 15, it says that Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force and make him king. Well, the Messiah was God's anointed, the ultimate Davidic king, whom God was going to send into the world to restore the kingdom of Israel and to rule over the nations forever. So it's unlikely that the crowds would have intended to make Jesus king if they didn't think that he was the Messiah. Now, if this is true, you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, the crowds understood the significance of the miracle, right? The miracle pointed to Jesus' identity as the Christ, the king. And that was true. They recognized it. But if that's the case then it's confusing why Jesus responded to their response in the way that he did in verse 15. Because look what it says. Perceiving that they were about to come and to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. In other words, when the people saw the miracle, they concluded Jesus must be the Messiah. They intended to make him king. But Jesus would have nothing of it. And he left. Why? I think, in short, it's because while the crowds were in one sense right that Jesus was the Messiah, Jesus knew he wasn't the Messiah they were thinking of. They thought that the Messiah would be an earthly king, like David was, who would establish a geopolitical kingdom in the land and defeat all their enemies in battle like David had done. Indeed, even his disciples seemed to have believed this was the kind of Messiah Jesus would be. This is why they all declared that they were ready to die with him at the Last Supper. And later that night, they actually took out their swords and started to fight when the guards came to arrest Jesus. It was also why they were so confused so disillusioned when Jesus told them, put your swords away and allowed himself to be arrested so that he was condemned and crucified as an insurrectionist the next day. They didn't understand what had happened. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but this was not what they thought the Messiah would do. They had no category for A Messiah who would die naked on a Roman cross, condemned and humiliated before men, seemingly accursed by God. After all, the law said, cursed is the man who is hanged on a tree. 
But this was the very way that Jesus, the bread of God, would give eternal life to those who believe in him. In fact, it's very interesting that he would make this clear later on, after John 6, later on at the end of his life, when once again he would take a loaf of bread and bless it and break it and give it to his disciples. Except this time, he would tell them, this is my body, which is broken for you. How would Jesus, the bread of God, become a source of life, eternal life, to everyone who believes in him by offering himself up as a substitutionary sacrifice, the great Passover lamb, to make atonement for their sins so that they might be forgiven, might be rescued from the judgment of God. And then after he'd risen from the dead, he would call all men to feed upon him. That is, to partake of the benefits of his death as a free gift of grace. How? By simply putting their trust in him for salvation. See, Jesus was not the Messiah that the crowds were looking for. So they, they missed his true glory that was revealed through this sign. They were looking for a Messiah who would bring them earthly blessings, not one who would give them eternal life by dying as a sacrifice for their sins. It is interesting that in some ways this very error has been repeated again and again by people throughout history, hasn't it? H. Richard Niebuhr famously summed up the way that many people have thought about Jesus saying this, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. In other words, many people claim to believe in Jesus, but they refashion him into the type of king who will give them things that they want in this life without any yucky talk of sin or talk about the judgment they deserve from a holy God or the need for Jesus to sacrifice himself and save them from the judgment by burying it himself. None of that. And just as Jesus withdrew from the crowds when he perceived that they wanted to make him into the king that they wanted, I would argue he remains aloof from those who think of him this way. He requires that people believe in him as he is, not as we want him to be. And brothers and sisters, we too, like the disciples, As Christians, we have to beware of nurturing this kind of defective faith in Jesus, which begins to think of him primarily in terms of what we expect him to do for us in this life, rather than what he has done for us at the cross. When we see that in our soul, we need to sorrow over it and repent over it and ask the Lord to forgive us out of his grace. And instead, we ought to pray for strength to rejoice and trust in him as the one who has loved us and given himself for us as the bread of God to provide our souls with eternal life through his own death for our sins.
Only then will we be able to serve him freely out of a deep sense of gratitude and love. Well, this morning we've studied the fourth miraculous sign of Jesus recorded in John's gospel, Jesus feeding the 5,000. May God illumine our minds by the power of his spirit to see the glory of our Savior as it is displayed in this magnificent sign so that we might grow in our knowledge of and our trust in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for this incredible gospel of John. We thank you for the way that it so wonderfully reveals to us our Lord Jesus. We believe in him, but we need to know him more. We trust in him, but please help us with our unbelief and help us to trust in him more. Oh, Lord, we forsake our own meager resources as in any way sufficient for salvation or for spiritual life. But help us to forsake them even more and to depend upon Christ even more. Help us, oh, Lord, to know him as our ultimate Passover lamb, our great bread of life, who gives eternal life to our souls that we might love him more and trust and serve him with our lives even more. We pray it in his name. Amen.